Before I start this podcast, I would like to ask that anybody listening, please think about ways you would like me to make this better. I am just starting out. I have no experience with this format. I don't know what I want to do with the format. I'm thinking, you know, should I get a co-host? Should I get guest hosts? Should I do it on my own? Are there ways I can make it more interesting? Are there segments you'd like me to do? Please, whatever feedback you have, let me know. I will be available to hear it. We don't have that much else to do right now uh, other than, you know, make our voices heard and wait for the COVID crisis to end. So without further ado, please enjoy the episode and let me know what I can do to improve it, please. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sam Zellin, and welcome to the History in Today podcast. I'm a history student at the University of Connecticut, and the purpose of this podcast is to zero in on certain elements of history that pertain to current political matters and to see what can be learned from the past. The format is still very much in the planning stages, but the goal is for every episode to focus on one historical subject and its modern implications. I want to start this off by saying that while I'm going to be dealing with historical fact, many things I say on this podcast will be opinions. I want to create a platform for discussion and will welcome all responses I get, no matter where they come from on the political spectrum. But I'm going to make sure that when facts are on the table, I will cite all my sources at the end of each episode in case you want to check them out for yourself. In a world where people throw generalizations around about what they think has happened in the past, it is important to know the truth before you can try to use it in an argument, which is a problem I see a lot these days. Anyways, let's get into today's topic. Okay, so today's topic is police brutality. Police brutality is a hot-button issue right now, uh, as George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, Minnesota, eight days ago. Uh, Since then, the country has been in a tailspin with protests going everywhere you look. Uh, People are peacefully protesting. People are violently protesting. Um, Pushback has been against both. Uh, and this has been coming for a while. Uh, you can see, you know, you can look to the death of Ahmaud Arbery or the death of Breonna Taylor earlier this year, or the death of Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Philando Castile, all of these in the last 10 years, not even. Um, and this simple truth that people are protesting is that all of these are related by racism and all of these, or most of them did not get the justice that they deserved. So, The thing that we're going to connect this to from history takes us back to answering the question of the American identity that rioting has and how protesting and rioting is the backbone of American society. And we would not, none of us would be here without it. So I want to take us all back to 1770, where we saw probably the first instance of what I'm going to refer to here as police brutality, even though it technically it was the British army, it's a similar concept. So if you've haven't, if you, you've probably, if you've been through grade school, you, you've heard of the Boston massacre, but I think we need to go into detail as to why the Boston massacre can be applied to today's events and, you know, why it's important. So let's have a little background on the Boston Massacre. Uh, the, the U.S. colonies had been living in harmony or in relative harmony with the British crown for 
over a century uh, before the 1760s. And starting in the 1760s, King George III, who was n- who was needing money for his you know expenses that he needed to pay for the Seven Years' War, which of course the colonies fought for him, decided to impose some acts that we know now as the Stamp Act and the Tea Act and the Sugar Act, and a bunch of others that the colonists wouldn't like. Um, you know, just like today when the tax taxes go up, the people aren't happy, uh, and. These, this obviously wasn't met with, you know, it's met with the same way people react to taxes now, except it was the 1700s, so a little bit more extreme. Uh, people didn't like it in Boston. They started to be not the best subjects, so he sent in the military, and this is the reason why we have the Third Amendment, which, of course, is that you can't quarter, you can't quarter soldiers without your permission. Uh, he did exactly that, so... All of a sudden, the people of Boston are occupied by British soldiers, and you have pretty much—it's a pretty much a police force, but they're living in your homes. Um, and you know this is going to piss people off. So we take us to our scene on March fifth, seventeen seventy, and this is what would come to be known as the Boston Massacre. So. The first thing you have to understand about the Boston Massacre is that it was not just a massacre. So when people talk about massacres, they usually refer to one oppressive power putting down another with no, you know, that they weren't provoked. This was not that. The Boston Massacre, or at least the event leading up to the Boston Massacre, was a riot. Uh, These people were rioting in the square in Boston and throwing snowballs and the British army was ordered not to shoot. So, you know, we're starting to see a familiar scene here. You have rioters, you have protesters protesting the British crown and their occupation of Boston. And then you have these 1770s police officers ordered not to shoot. Now, of course, what would happen is they would shoot. And at the end of the event, five colonists were killed and the British officers were there with blood on their hands. Now, what would happen next is the American Revolution. Uh, You see, basically, you know, the next five years until 1775 when the war would begin, sort of, you would see all this unrest escalating, 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 the Sons of Liberty, the Continental Congress, all of this stuff that you've heard about. Um, And another event that I want to talk about before I go back to deep diving into the Boston Massacre is the Boston Tea Party. So most people have heard of the Boston Tea Party. They know what it was, um, but they don't really think about it in the context of today. So basically, you have December 16th, 1773, Uh, Three years after the Boston Massacre, this has gotten worse. So the Sons of Liberty were primarily in the Boston area. They were radicals, uh, definitely radicals for the cause. Just like you could say that the 2020 uh, George Floyd movement radicals, there are definitely, you know, more 
intense, more violent members of the protest. So these people dress up, they disguise themselves as Native Americans, they board a British tea ship, and they throw all the tea into the harbor. Now, if you're not going to tell me that that isn't looting, I don't know what is. (laughs) Anybody that is going to say, you know, what would the founding fathers think about the looting and the rioting, they should look at their history. You know, the 1770 Boston Massacre was a riot that incited a revolution. And the Boston Tea Party, one of another, you know, heroic thing they teach you in grade school, was looting. We jumped on a ship and stole and threw out and destroyed all their tea. Uh, was it really a, was it a, was it a war tactics? No. It was a message. It was sending a message and it sent that message. And we talk about that message almost, you know, you know, more than 200 years later. Uh, so I want to stress the fact that, you know, you have these two events that happened before the country was even a country when you have patriots just fighting for the little that they have of autonomy. Uh, and they didn't do it through peaceful protest. You couldn't get a, you couldn't get an audience with the king and ask him to stop taxing you. That wasn't, that wasn't possible. When, when something isn't possible, when you have a leader that isn't going to listen to you because he doesn't feel that he has to, sometimes you have to ruffle a few feathers. Sometimes you have to throw the tea into the harbor. So what I'm trying to say here is the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party were not necessarily the brightest moments of American history. They weren't necessarily our, you know our shining example, but they got the job done. <laughs> we, none of us would be here without the events and the deeds that the Sons of Liberty did. And they did. They got, they got the job done. So now I want to talk about the people of the Boston Massacre and how it was spun after. But the first person and the most important part of this Boston Massacre saga, in my opinion, is a man named Crispus Attucks. So in order to understand why Crispus Attucks was where he was when the Boston Massacre occurred and what he was doing, we have to go back and look at his life and where he came from. So he was born in Framingham, Massachusetts as a slave. Uh, He was part Native American and part Black. And he escaped at the age of 27. And at the time, this is, you know, colonial United States, there really is nowhere to go for an escaped slave, unfortunately. Uh, The North had slaves, the South had slaves. There wasn't, you know, like later on, there would be fugitive slaves fleeing to the North. That wasn't a thing. So he had to work on a ship. And that brings him from Framingham to Boston, which had the harbor. So he ends up working on a ship as a rope maker and a sailor working out of Boston Harbor. And that's a pretty good deal for him because he is still fleeing from the law. He's not, you know, home free. But on a ship, there really aren't the same laws. You can be a fugitive slave without any fear of being caught, which is a truly remarkable thing that happened in the 1700s where that happened all over the place. It happened down in the Caribbean where pirates were, you know, being way more democratic and way more equal than anybody on the mainland. Uh, And 
basically for Christmas addicts, he has this, you know, this good job, this freedom on the water. And that all comes crashing down when the British take over. So the British come into Boston and they're occupying. And that's annoying for the people that are, you know, getting quartered. They're, you know, the British army is living in their houses. That's annoying. But for the people that are poor and that don't really, you know, <clears throat> have the money to just like, they're not really quartering the soldiers because they don't really have the house for it. But for the people that, that need their jobs, the British people aren't just quartering in their houses. They're also taking the jobs. When you have, you know, an oversaturated population, some people are going to be unhappy that their jobs are gone. And that is still the case today. So what happens is these British officers are now taking jobs in the harbor business. And three days before the Boston Massacre, Christmas Addicts and a bunch of other uh, rope makers and sailors get into a little tussle with soldiers in a bar over who should have these jobs. And that ends up stewing and stewing and for the next three days. Uh, and then finally, Christmas Addicts leads a group of people to protest these soldiers taking their jobs. And that's when you get to State Street, you get to the center of the action for the Boston Massacre. And what is essentially a riot that just like what we would see today, you have people throwing things, you have people um, yelling, you have, you know, name calling. This is not a peaceful protest. Uh, peaceful protests are one thing you see, you know, a lot more of them later in American history. At this point, when people want to make a point, they provoke. So obviously the British soldiers have the offer, the, have the order not to fire at all. Um, and the Bostonians are being rowdy. So it's important to know that what happened next is just the, the moment. It wasn't like a long struggle. It was, it was a moment. And then it was over. So by now the riot had escalated and you had the angry rioters yelling, fire, fire, fire. Some people saying, don't shoot. There was obviously, you know, mixed feelings on what they were trying to get the soldiers to do. And it's actually from the fire group, obviously, that the supposed reason for the Boston Massacre occurred. So the account of what happened is that somebody yelled fire it could have been Thomas Preston, the leader of the soldiers. It could have been a member of the crowd. But the bottom line is something came out of the gun. Um, a shot was fired, the first shot being fired into uh, the chest of Crispus Attucks, and seven to eight more being shot into four other men and others that were injured, but five ended up dying. And it's important to know here that none of the founding fathers that you hear about or the Sons of Liberty, were at this event. This event wasn't, I mean, they may have been at it, but they weren't They weren't the forerunners of this event at all. The, it was, this was an event led by normal people who were pissed about their situation. Uh, right, rightfully so. They were being occupied by an oppressive force, and they wanted to do something about it. And... <clears throat> What happened after the events of the Boston Massacre 
shows the truly American way that even before this country was founded, the colonists at the time conducted themselves and how despite all of the anger that was caused by the fact that all of these, you know, that these five men and all of these people were injured, uh, it's just, it's interesting what happened after. So the aftermath of the Boston Massacre is very much a tale of two cousins, and you have John and Samuel Adams. And John Adams is the man of fairness here and the man of justice. And Samuel Adams is the man of vigilante justice and of impulsiveness. When he heard the news, when they both heard the news, Sam Adams, who was the more powerful member of the Sons of Liberty, uh, John Adams actually was affiliated with the Sons of Liberty, but he wasn't really in it. And the Sons of Liberty was, even by some separatists, some people that didn't want to be part of British Crown, considered the Sons of Liberty to be too radical. Uh, Sam Adams, on the other hand, didn't. Uh, but he was angry, obviously. Um, and he wanted all these people to be brought to justice and given the ultimate punishment. So he wasn't even up for a trial. And John Adams, who was a very intelligent lawyer, who did not like Britain just like the rest of them, but believed in fairness, said, no, we're going to try them and I'm going to be their lawyer. So he, re he received a ton of flack for this. He was hated in Boston. He was called a loyalist. He was called everything in the book. But in the courtroom, he defended these people. And he proved that most of them, all but two, were not guilty. They didn't fire. They were defending themselves. A uh, mixture of the two. And two of them were guilty of manslaughter, not murder. And that court case is, in my opinion, one of the most important uh, single court cases, not because of precedent, but because of what it means for the American standard. I think that even today, you have two different sides of America, that even when there's, when there's one protest and there's one force there's two sides to that coin. You have the people that are having good intentions. You can't argue that Sam Adams didn't have good intentions. People that have good intentions but are pushing it too far and not really thinking as much. And then you have John Adams who is reining it in. And he was, in the end, the more successful of the two cousins where he, you know, he brought these people to justice. But with the power of Sam Adams that he had, you know, they, they both in tandem, you have these people are given the right justice and the spark is lit for the revolution. You can't have one without the other because nothing gets done. Okay. So to sum up this episode, I want to relate the two. Uh, I want to make it very clear that George Floyd and Crispus Attucks are not the same person in this scenario. Yes, they have similarities, but they are not the same person. Both died at a time when their death caused change. And that is true and will always be true, and both of them should be honored for it. Unfortunately, both of them had to die for this change, but both of them should be hailed as heroes in this country. And it is very important 
to understand that this struggle is for the entire country. It's not just for the black people in this country. Crispus Attucks, unfortunately, stood up for a country that would not see him as a person for 90 years after. And then after those 90 years, would not see him as an equal person, even today, unfortunately. Crispus Attucks even at the rally, even leading the protest that turned into the Boston Massacre, was running the risk of being arrested by the very people that he was fighting for. Luckily, there have always been and will always be some allies that are here to support the people, no matter what color their skin is and no matter what they look like and where they come from. It matters what they're doing. And Christmas Addicts stood up for the people of Boston And George Washington himself, when referring to him, said that he came to the front and bore the cross to the victory of the glorious martyrdom. Talking about how this man, without his death and without his sacrifice, we probably wouldn't have a country. Without being able to spin the Boston Massacre into this, you know, force towards uh, anti-imperialism that would turn into the war, we would not have a country. We wouldn't be having this discussion because none of us would be here. And I think going back to the modern day, it's important to think that, yes, Martin Luther King preached um, peaceful protest. And yes, that worked at the time. But we are here 50 years later. And change still needs to happen. And peaceful protest isn't the answer all the time. I'm not saying that the looting that is going on in New York City right now, or the looting that happened on the Boston Tea Party, for that matter, is the answer. But it's undeniable how both the peaceful protest and the more aggressive protests are making people listen. Uh, The bottom line here is that you cannot have a country with a representative government that ignores all of its people forever. But it has to be all of its people. That's the important part. It can't be a marginal group because then they will listen to the group that they want to hear. And if you look at the the American Revolution and how it stood, it started with people being pissed off about taxes and a group of sailors marching for what they believed in and why they wanted their jobs against people that were coming in and taking them. And it turned into a unified front where over a course of five years, a small, brand new nation took out the greatest empire in the world and told them, no, this is not how we're going to live. This is not the reality we are going to live with. And I do believe that eventually, if this movement continues to have the power that it's had over the past week and a half, We will get the same result. I'm not saying that we need a war against the government because that's not the reality of today. But I'm saying that the interpretation is the same. Perseverance and strength in numbers are American values that will always win the day. Eventually. Yeah, maybe one going to one protest and or posting one thing or donating to one charity with one person will not solve America's problems. I if I'm being honest, I went to a protest in my hometown yesterday and I felt scared on my own to speak out. 
But the minute I was within the group, I felt that power to make change. And thinking of that on a bigger scale, one protest in one town might not have the desired effect. But if every town has that protest, then no politician can ignore that. Even the most stubborn, lobby, lobbyist-controlled politician has to eventually listen to the people that voted them in, and if they don't, they get voted out. That is the important part of America that makes us such a strong country. If, for however long it takes to make real change in this country, people support the movement as they have for the last 10 days, and people add and this movement grows, change will happen. And it is important now that the, the people of all background come to support this and not just black people supporting themselves. Because when you look at history, people like Crispus Attucks were fighting for a country that only served the white people for 90 years before even considering bringing black people in the door. So if you look at this and you see that a black man laid his life down for a white country, why can't the white people lay their lives down for the black people of the same country? This is, of course, an ongoing struggle. Uh, since the death of George Floyd, people like Tony McDade have become victims of this horrible systemic racism in this country. And people need to continue to fight and write our history, our history that American history belongs to everybody that has either lived here, been born here, had a relative here. Everybody is related to this. And now it is time to write our chapter. The next couple of years, we will see what comes of this. We will see if we were able to cause real change. And I truly believe that we have that chance. So let's make the most of it. I want to end today's episode by urging people to support Black-run businesses and charities and just supporting the movement in any way you can. Black Lives Matter, and that message is being spread around the country and should be heard and spread until everybody knows it and everybody believes it. For that, I am Sam Zellen. This has been History in Today, and I hope you all have a good week. I'll see you next Wednesday. My sources for today's episode were the Library of Congress website about the Boston Massacre, the History.com Boston Massacre webpage, and the Crispus Attucks Museum webpage about his life and where he came from. Thank you.